when we read uh, Deeper Magic, we talked about hello. Hi. Sorry. We talked about reason as the organ of understanding, and the imagination is the organ of meaning. Now, do you guys remember what that means? Say that again. Reason is the organ of understanding, and imagination is the organ of meaning. Wasn't that from C.S. Lewis? That yeah. is from C.S. Lewis. This is a class on C.S. Lewis. It's like the Sunday school answer. The Sunday school answer. Instead of Jesus. In this class, it's just, oh, Lewis. Sorry, Anne. That is, to me, it was funny. It is funny. I think it's easier to think about it as logic and poetry. Okay, you can, you can. Well, that's what he used. Yes. And everything he wrote. Right. So he his argument was that his reason was the organ of understanding. I understand Logic. what things are and how they function, but I don't know what they mean until my imagination gets involved. Right. And that's what Tolkien wanted him to do, was to read the Bible the way he read literature and let it affect his imagination and stop worrying so much about it being true or not. Ah, uh, okay. And, and what that led him to is believing that it was true. <laughs> because something so beautiful... And something so, uh, right, he read a lot of books. His whole thing about the scripture is that no man would write this book. This is a book written by a very mysterious God that we can hardly understand. Which I, I like that sort of mystery, uh, mysterious way that he approached it. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so another thing, uh, as we're reviewing here, the correspondence theory of truth. What is the correspondence theory of truth? If I say New York is full of pink buildings... And you say New York looks like a normal building, or it's full of normal-looking buildings. How would we know who's right? Who's been there? Who's actually been there? <laughs> we would go to New York, right? So if I say there's systemic racism, and you say there's not systemic racism, we would have to then what? Provide proof. Pro provide yeah. proof. Examples of it. Yeah. You cannot simply assert things. If, um, if you start doing the gender-bending thing, what always disproves the gender-bending thing is the reality the, the arguments that we make have to correspond to, to things that actually exist as they are. Okay? And if they don't, right, the burden of proof is on the person who's making the assertion. Hey, guys, we're not going to play that right now, okay? Thank you. I love everyone, but it's like all I can hear. Okay. So the correspondence theory of truth, all right, so there's an, a couple of other ideas that I don't know if we covered them in this class. Uh, some of you may have read the essay, there's, there's one called Reading Old Books. Has anyone read this essay? Yeah, I read it. <laughs> Months ago. Okay, so Reading Old Books, why does C.S. Lewis think we should read old books? Well, it's not the newer ideas that are likely to be overlooked, it's older ideas. That's right, newer ideas will not be as overlooked as older ideas. It gives us a different perspective. Different on perspective. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, it was interesting to me because I was raised that the Middle Ages was the Dark Ages. Yep. And yet, reading, you know, Lewis, that's yeah. not right. It is not right. So I was sold a bunch of bunk. In high well, school. yeah, just I mean, you. And yeah, just you. <laughs> no one else. Um, <laughs> So what I always find funny with this, especially when I have students who are teenagers, is I ask them, I, I say the modern period, and everyone thinks I mean since the 50s. And when I say the modern period... You mean the 19th century? Well, I even mean, I think... 17th to 
17th. <laughs> like, once you cross into... Um, I'd probably say 18th. Yeah, once you cross into the 17th century especially, you're in the modern period. Uh, everything, like, the literature before the 17th century and the literature after the 17th century are not the Look, same. French Revolution happened 18th century, and I'd probably... Yeah. Personally, I think of things... After when, that. After that is modern because they started having different perspectives on yeah. reality. Good, good, good. So I would draw the line in literature a little earlier. But I understand what you're saying. Because at that point, we're, we're toppling kings. We're tearing down the whole old system uh, of, of the structure of society itself. And, and that is a good demarcation line. So we have this idea of, of, of right, like <laughs> kids these days. Everyone thinks Harry Potter is going to be some classic everyone's reading in a thousand years. Now, I don't necessarily know that it's not. I don't really think it's going to be, though. Whereas what we can see with Tolkien and Lewis is that they're becoming what we would call classics. Mm -hmm. Now the other argument that he makes in reading old books, which I'm discovering again because I'm reading Plutarch. So I'm reading Plutarch about the lives of the makers of Rome. And it is really well written. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, this is a book that was written thousands of years ago in a, in a different language, and, and, but it's translated into English. And it's exciting and interesting and thought-provoking, and it's just well-written. And there's a reason it's a classic. And, and part of um, Lewis's argument is that what's, you know what's less confusing than reading books, modern books about Plato is reading Plato. So don't waste your time with modern people. Like if you ever Interpreting. Got, yeah, because if you get a Penguin Classics, right, the book is this big, and then this much is the introduction and this much is the actual book. Like, I'm, I'm shocked by how small some classic pieces of literature are because the introductory material is like 300 pages. Because there's these long essays about it and I, that I don't understand. <laughs> so, if you, if you, you know, reading old books helps you because they're, they're less confusing than people writing about them. Um, the, you know, the other example, and he doesn't use it in his essay, but I like it, is in the Victorian era, they, they, um, Someone found this artifact buried in the sand in Egypt or something. And it was this big breakthrough thing, and everyone was very thrilled. And they put it in the British Museum, and, and um, it, it made the, the person who found it very famous. And then over a period of time, after the Victorian period ended, somebody was standing there looking at it who knew a thing or two, some PhD, and was like, oh, that's a fake. And the reason he was able to tell it was a fake is that the, he, the Victorians couldn't see the Victorian elements in the fake because they were so used to seeing this kind of stylistic thing that they had there that they assumed, right, they didn't even see it when they were looking at this artifact. But anyone, as soon as you get outside the Victorian era, could see, well, that's totally Victorian. There's Victorian elements in the thing you found in the sand. And it was a bit scandalous. And, and we don't realize, I think, like, like say Tim Keller and I. Tim Keller and I are very different kinds of pastors, but we probably have more in common obviously, than, than say I would with C.S. Lewis, because of our modern understanding of things. We make this similar errors, Tim Keller and I, and so we need C.S. Lewis to come into the room with his books and tell us what's wrong about them, right? Tell us the Victorian elements. Okay, uh, there's another essay he wrote called Meditation in a Tool Shed, which is probably one of the best titles that he, well, maybe Man or Rabbit was another good title, but Meditation in a Tool Shed. Does anyone read this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a while. Okay, so he's in this tool shed and he sees coming through this hole high up in the wall a beam of light. 
and, he, and, and it's very dark tool shed, and he sees this very, sh very bright beam of light. And so he's looking at the beam of light, and he's thinking about what he sees when he's looking at it. Well, then he walks over and he stands in the light, and crisp and clear through the hole in the wall comes this beautiful picture of a garden and a bird on a tree far away. So what he realizes is there's a difference between looking at the light and looking along the light. Now, his point here is that there's two ways of understanding things. You can study something like pain and explain it, right? We can hook you up to monitors and, and we can um, force you to have a great amount of pain and, and study it and look at it. Then what we would do is have you describe it to us, and that's looking along the beam of light. And your experience of pain is nothing like your description of pain. Um, and, and it's so funny. Eric, you know, I asked him about pain. You know, you go to the doctor and they're like, on this chart, how much pain are you feeling? And there's like, to 10. yeah, there's like numbers or there's faces. Yeah. 10's the worst, yeah. Yeah, yeah and you I, find that? This always makes, I, every time I feel pain, it's the most pain that I think I can bear. And I was just, it, it just proven to me, I cut my thumb earlier this week, and I... And the moment that it happened, I was like, this is the most painful thing I've ever experienced. Pain to me is always a 10. It's not like, oh, I'm feeling this and this is a 3. <laughs> um, everybody doesn't think that way. Everybody doesn't think that way. But like, no. thinking about it this way, like someone asking me what number, I'm a 10. Okay, how about now? I'm still a 10. <laughs> like, the pain is bad. Make it stop. And, and it's very, very, very subjective, I think. So it what, is, you know, you just off the cuff. Um, some somebody talked to some of the children at St. Jude's Hospital that are going through cancer, mm -hmm. and asking them, you know, how do they how do they handle the pain? Mm -hmm. And they said, actually, it's a joy to us because when we wake up and we have pain, it knows we're still alive. Yes. Pain is a, a, a something that makes us know we're human. Mm -hmm. um, and in his book on the problem of pain, he talks about, he has a very lengthy argument about how animals don't actually experience pain, which is yes. thought-provoking, but I was like, it was really hard to understand. <laughs> I was like, so they experience it, but they don't know it's pain, so they don't experience it? Anyway, pain is a very strange thing. In, in his... his um, Meditation and toolshed. He also uses love as another example. So again, a man falls in love with a woman. You can hook him up to machines, and you can study his heart rate and his glands, and he's, the fact that his forehead is sweating. But none of that it comes close to what he would, how he would describe the feeling he gets when he sees his beloved. So looking at the beam and looking along the beam are two different ex ways of understanding, and he is not rejecting one over the other. His argument is that. Every you know, modern man looks at the light and thinks that's everything you need to know about it. Okay, um, what he argues for is both looking at the light and studying it, but then looking along the beam of light and experiencing it. Okay, so going back, to another thing we covered at the very beginning of class was the arche and the logos. Now these are two philosophical terms stolen by the New Testament authors. You guys have to remember what RK is, the RK. Okay, well, let me help you out. The K 
cosmos were a pyramid. Oh. Right? Here's everything, what's at the top? The earth king. Yes, from, and this is where you get biblical ideas like the spirit proceeds from the father and the son, the son proceeds from the father. There's this starting point from which everything goes out. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He's the thing that gets everything moving. That's going to become very important. That's exactly how C.S. Lewis describes it. The, uh, he's still like from Aristotle. The unmoved mover. Okay, if, if I'm standing here and a ball comes bouncing in the room, my assumption is not that the ball sent itself moving. Something set it in motion. And so if the universe is in motion, right, if human history is in motion, if, if time is in motion, all these things are in motion, something had to start it. And, and the arche, what is the arche? Um, modern paradigm denies that there is such a thing, but there has to be such a thing, right? Because it can't be turtles, as the pagans used to say, all the way down. Okay, what's holding up the earth? Well, a turtle. Holding up the turtle. Well, another turtle. Right? And this guy's, this pagan priest is arguing and with the student. The student says, well, I don't understand it. And he goes, listen, it's turtles all the way down. It's like an infinite regress of turtles. That's where that comes from? That is where that comes from. That actually is like some story out of like ancient philosophy. Yeah. Um, so the Logos then is, I would say the Logos is the logic that holds the whole thing together. Okay? So in the beginning was God, but who was with him? The Logos was with him. And everything was made through the Logos. Everything was, is bound together by the Logos. The Logos is the connective tissue to the cosmos. He's the thing in which everything resides, holds it all together. So the Arche and the Logos, philosophically, are what, when we get to the idea of desire, what is it that people are desiring? Well, they're desiring the source of all things, and they're desiring the logic of all things. And this is where you have God the Father and God the Spirit, or God the Son, sorry. How God the Spirit works in here, we'll talk about later. Okay, now what we're going to do is turn... Okay, because C.S. Lewis was always struggling against the modern paradigm. And he had an alternative that was not modern, but was in fact medieval. Yeah. Medieval. Medieval. Now, the medievalists, um, essentially the way... I think it's important to describe how they, what kind of people they were. Okay, they were bookish people, and if you read C.S. Lewis's essay um, uh, that I sent out, you can offer whatever thoughts you have on this, but and maybe catch something I missed. But they were bookish people. Now the books, though, they didn't have the entire canon. Like you know now how we we get the great books and you buy this beautiful leather-bound set, and it's all the great books going all the way back. That was never how it worked. So somebody would have a small portion of Plato, some rare portion of Plato that even is rare to us now that we don't really read that much because there's better Plato. <laughs> somebody would have a copy of that. Somebody would have the Gospel of Mark. Somebody would have uh, some epistles written by Augustine. And what you had were these people who obsessed over what they did have. And they had all these fragments. They had fragments from the classical world, from the Eastern world, from the pagan world, from the Christian world. And what they had to do, or what they decided to do, was to harmonize the whole thing, right? How do all these fragments fit together? They did not reje reject the unbe unbelieving fragments. They took those, right? Plato and Aristotle. They, they assumed that Plato and Aristotle was true. 
what they, they had to do then was reconcile it with Paul. Okay? So how, how does Paul and Aristotle and Boethius and Anselm and Augustine and Jerome, how do all these people fit together? And this was the great project of the Middle Ages. And what I would say is that they figured out how. They figured out how to fit it all together. Um, there's different ways of thinking about it, but the great chain of being is one. You guys remember what the great chain of being is? Now, if you went back into the, if you go back to 1050 and you're like, hey guys, I love the great chain of being, great idea. They, they would not know what you're talking about. This is a construct that we use to understand their understanding of their own universe. But the great chain of being is this, is that the universe is this tall tower that has runs on it like a ladder. Okay, they, or you have versions of it where it's concentric circles. But at the top is God, okay? And then what you have down from there are all the beings in the universe from top to bottom. And everyone belongs in this chain of being somewhere. So it, great, it gave a great sense of security to people. I'm a miller. My mom was a miller, or my parents were millers. Their parents were millers. In this town, I live in this town where my great-great-grandfather is buried. I walk past his grave when I go to church. I was a miller here, my, and my great-great-great-grandchildren will walk past my grave here too. And if you think about how, like, he knew where he belonged in society, he knew who his masters were, he knew who was beneath him, he knew where the animals fit in this thing, he knew who was in charge, God. And this whole chain of being helped them organize the cosmos and the hierarchy of the cosmos. Now, the idea originated with Aristotle, right, and when he calls it the ladder of life, and he describes it as, like, three steps um, but then you look at like medieval versions of it where they have paintings of what they think the universe is and it look, and it's the great chain of being. But it's like 19 ladders with like concentric circles on the outside. It's this, it looks like some sort of pagan god. But um, this was one way that if you go back, you can see they took this idea from Aristotle and they added things to it. Well, how does the Bible describe the heavens? Oh, well, there's seven heavens. And there are three... You know, three layers of hell. Is there more than that, or is there three? Is there also seven? seven no, oh, yeah, okay. So seven above us, Ninth seven below us, <laughs> all these ladders in, in the middle. And so you get somebody like Dante, who writes a thoroughly Christian poem, probably, arguably, the greatest Christian poem ever written, and in it he has all of these, it's kind of like Narnia. You go in there and he's got elements from every conceivable period of time. He's got, he's got Plato in there, or Aristotle's walking around in there. He's got Augustine walking around in there. His banker and all of his enemies are down in the lowest pits of hell. <laughs> he's got the Pope in there, right? He's got all these elements and characters and things where he harmonized all this literature into this one great poem. And, and this is what the medievalists were. They were great harmonizers. Okay, does this make sense, what I'm saying? Um, now, C.S. Lewis's argument... Well, what he liked about it was that the organization itself, he thought the modern paradigm was chaotic. He thought modern man was chaotic. Modern man is chaotic. Okay? And, and, and the part, part of the reason that this happened was the Copernican Revolution. Now, what is the Copernican Revolution? The planets revolve around the sun. Yes, so it's a heliocentric solar system. Now, I have great problems with this, actually. 
Um, because it might be that the solar system is heliocentric. It might be. But is that how the theology of the Bible describes it? In the theology of the Bible, what is at the center of the universe? Earth. Earth. <laughs> now, so this is what so there's this opens up several things for us. Is it that the Earth is at the center of the of the universe and that's it? Is it do we have to think about the fact that in the Bible that's how it describes it? And then once you get outside, right? If you take a telescope and you go to outside of the solar system, oh, it turns out not. What I find fascinating about this is they're proving nowadays that, you know those mobiles that we see where it's like the sun in the middle and everything goes around? Well, that's not actually what it looks like. It looks like the sun is moving through the sky and all the planets are revolving around it and everything is moving like a corkscrew through the universe. So my question is, if, if everything is moving, how do you determine a fixed point of the center? For me, logically, that just doesn't make any sense. It's all relative. It's all relative. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So you might as well say anything. The universe. I'm going to go with the Bible, but whatever. <laughs> um, but the Copernican Revolution, it undid all of this work in the Middle Ages to um, give structure to the cosmos. Okay, So this is how they used to think about it. You've got Earth. Okay, here it is. And then you have the moon here. Okay. And then you have out here the stars, and then above that we're going to talk about what, what is beyond that. But let's just start with this. So the moon seems, if you're looking at it from the Earth, much closer than everything else. The planets, the stars, everything. So this, this right here must be the lower heavens that they're talking about. This is the silent planet. This is the fallen world. This is where disease and decay and the fall have, have taken an effect. Then what you have is this realm up here where the angels live, further out, and, and, um, and those things don't move. They stay, they, right? They, they are there, they're just singing. And they're making a, a sound that we cannot hear, like a fish cannot tell it's wet. Right? This is partially how they would, th this is how they explained it. They're making, no, they're making music to, this, to the heaven, in the highest heavens, like it says in the Bible, and, and we can't we can't distinguish it from other things because we've all, all we've ever known is the sound that it makes. Okay? Now, well, we're going to get way into this. This is just the very beginning. But when a planet like Jupiter would get very close to the edge here, it would have this effect. Its gravitational pull, it would have influence on the people who were born at that time or were... <laughs> it comes near the earth and so it starts having an effect on people on nature on the whole structure right and then once it goes away it's it's it stops having the same effect so this is why they used to talk about oh i was born under such and such a planet right and or lunacy comes from the word lunar when when it was it appeared it, as if the moon would get closer to the earth which there's reasons scientifically for why it looks that way and it's full and this kind of stuff, and you would, you're under the effect of the moon now, and you would become a lunatic. That's why people, right? And I mean, even now, my dad was a cop, and they still talk about full moon nights. Oh my gosh, it's Friday, it's payday, and there's a full moon. I remember that. And my dad would be like taking extra handcuffs and a shotgun with him to work. And it was madness, especially back in the 80s and 90s in Seattle. It was the Wild West. And there was just, there's this sort of weird, um, I don't know 
superstition, I suppose, that we have where the moon has some sort of unnatural effect on us. Well, it comes from the Middle Ages because they thought it actually, right, the word influenza, we call influence. it the flu, the influence. You, you have influenza. Well, what does that mean? Well, the planet's nearby now and it's having an effect on you. Okay. Well, doesn't the moon have some effect on, on like, tides? Yes. Okay. Yes. But, but that's not my the, mind. Yeah, but that's not, yeah. Yeah. The tides aren't your mind. Well, that's no. that's good to know. Um, okay, so the per- Copernican revolution then undoes all of this. It do- undoes what he, C.S. Lewis argues is the imaginative purpose of the cosmology. Now, what gets really interesting is how far C.S. Lewis goes with this. Because I was just asked the other day, did he really believe the angels and the stars were somehow the same thing? And my answer is, I'm not really sure. Um, because in the, in the Middle Ages, the way they would... If you go in the scriptures, actually, let's start there. It is a little confusing. The stars and the angels, at times, seem to be the same body of, of heavenly beings referred to. They talk about stars falling out of the sky. They talk about the host of heaven. At one moment, it's stars. At one moment, it's angels. They talk about angels descending and having an effect and influence on what goes on in, in Ezekiel, say... So the way that the medievals thought about it was that I have a physical body. I also have a, a spirit. My spirit is not my physical body. Okay? It can, they can be separated. So when you look up into the heavens, what you see are the physical bodies of the stars. But they have spirits. But their spirits can come and go from their bodies, just like they can in the Bible. Right? They go from one body to another body. And they can inhabit things. And so when you go to Jupiter, this is why in the Space Trilogy... I'm sorry, the Ransom Trilogy, C.S. Lewis has a character go to Paralandra and meet the angel, the Alindel, uh, 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 yes, of that planet. He walks up and he meets Paralandra. It's a person, okay, or a being, an intelligence. And this is, a, this is the medieval idea. This is how they reconciled the scriptures and all of these various things that they say about stars and angels. Th- does this make sense, what I'm saying? Now, what I'm not arguing for is that we, I'm not arguing biblically that this is true. Okay? I, I'm taking the stance with C.S. Lewis that what, what's important is for us to stop and think about it. Because, and this is the great experiment. Okay? If, we wanna, if we want to think about the effect that the Copernican, like the post Copernican revolution idea of space and the pre-Copernican revolution idea of space, the medieval cosmology, the modern cosmology. Let's just think about them imaginatively for a second. So when I sit down at my computer and I go to the Hubble telescope and I can look at a galaxy, right? Does it, it doesn't have the same effect on me personally as when I walk outside on a clear night, say when I'm in the country, not in the city, and I look up and it's full of stars. When I go out and look up, right, I'm standing in the center of the universe looking out at something that I can't reach, this frontier that's beyond reach. That has a different effect on me than when I'm looking at Hubble telescope pictures, right? When I'm watching a video of Joel putting somebody in space and bringing them back, like, I'm like, oh, like, it all just seems so manageable. <laughs> it's, right? It looks like something I can overcome. Whereas if I go up, right, I go outside and I look up and I'm like, man, I like to go to the moon. It seems like an impossibility. I can't even imagine when I'm standing there looking at it. Does this make sense? This is his central argument. 
is that we've lost the imaginative effect, the, the beautiful, humbling, theological purpose of the medieval cosmology. And what he wanted was, like in his argument for reading old books, for us to go back and consider it so that we, it, it could undo some of the, the modern paradigm that we have. Does this make sense? Now, how many of you guys have ever been in a giant cathedral in Europe? Lots of you. Nice. Okay. What is on the ceiling, generally? Or painting? Yeah, paintings. Okay. Now, why? Why would they put a painting on the ceiling? To tell stories. To tell stories? Yeah. Do we put paintings on ceilings? Do you go into any modern building and 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 think? Right. When's the last time you walked into a modern building and looked up? Now, if you walk into an old building, what's like one of the first things you do? If you get used to getting into old buildings, yeah, you look up, right? And especially because they're built so tall in there. Yeah, they're so tall. They're 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 beautifully um, constructed. Wide. They're beautiful, right? One guy would start it like a, a cathedral. <laughs> he would die, and then some other guy would take over, and it would take like multiple generations to build these things. And, 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 the, and the thing is, the, the churches look like what they think the cosmos look like. Okay, you go in there, it's full of light, it's full of singing, there's, there's choirs in there, like if I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and, and they're, they're, they keep it up. There is a choir somewhere, and, and it's just echoing through this place, and they're singing, and I don't know where they are, but like you, you, it's just this heavenly singing. The whole time you're in there, and over a while you... You get used to it so that you're not even paying attention to it anymore, like the singing of the stars. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the stained glass windows and the paintings on the ceilings. One Catholic church I went to in Annapolis, actually, had constellations on the ceiling. Um, and that church was made in the 17th century. But it was the same idea. They wanted you to go into this place and, and look at the world. And at the center of that world is what? The pulpit. <laughs> the, the place... Um, where they put the Lord's Supper, the place where the minister preaches from, that's usually the center of the place. Mm-hmm. Okay, But also, if you're illiterate and you go into a, these cathedrals, you go down the line. This is the other one is uh, my wife. We were in, she hasn't gone to a lot of these places, but when we were in Porto, you, get, you can tell. You walk in and you can tell who Moses is and who David is because the way they would paint things is there are certain elements John the Baptist always has and certain elements so that you would go in and you can read the stories like watching a movie and you would know who's who and you get to experience the biblical stories as you're walking through this big giant cavernous place. Okay, So you always know who Mary is versus Mary Magdalene. You always know who John the Baptist is. Right, There's a lot of Johns, but you can figure out who John the Baptist is. He always is dressed the same way. And, you, and if you don't have the stories to read yourself, you go in and you live them out as you walk through, okay? And, and what they did was they made their cathedrals look like what they thought the cosmos looked like, okay? You walk into a big cavernous place and you look up. And you're supposed to be humbled by it. You're supposed to hear beautiful music. This was the whole point. Now, where, where are some places you guys have been? Where have you been? Where cathedrals? Cologne, Germany. <clears throat> the cathedral there is incredibly beautiful. Cologne, Germany? Yes. Everywhere. I'm telling you, everywhere over there. Yeah. The Vatican. No, the Vatican? Oh my gosh. Oh, you went to the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. 
Now, do they, now, see, you want to talk about medievalists. Did you see some pagan elements in there? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, there's all kinds of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Chicken's art. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's remarkable how they synthesized, right? And, I mean, if you want to, that's a great place to go and, and learn exactly what, I, what I'm describing as a medievalist. How do you have this wall of philosophers, mm-hmm. and you got all these Christians and all these pagans hanging out together? Right. Um, there's a paint, some paintings over the, the office doors by Michelangelo, and, and it's all all the great philosophers. We've been to a few like cathedrals, like in Israel, or oh. there's a lot of like uh, Catholic ones, like especially over Golgotha, hmm. and it's weirded me out just to see all the innate stuff. To me, like I've been studying some stuff about. And so I was like, this is really pagan. Like, <laughs> but of course, I mean, I, I tend to probably be a little more rational than imaginative, so I can like, go in that area. But <laughs> yeah. But it ripped your imagination, didn't it? Uh, yeah, it was like, I felt like I was being tempted to be imaginative, and I wasn't really willing to, <laughs> like, at least when I was in that place. Yeah. It was kind of palpable. Cold, but, rational, evangelical. I know. That's what I'm, all, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, we're working on that. I know it was uh, it was funny because I'm a bit of an iconoclast, so I, I actually struggle a lot when I go into these places. I really like the ones in Ireland because they were Protestant, so they took out most of the stuff. Yeah. I was like, okay, this is a beautiful building, but um, it's not full of like a bunch of heretical stuff. But there was one church. But it could be austere often. Yeah, totally and austere. It lacks the the beauty of. Catholic cathedrals. Well, see, and that's the thing is, and this is where I'm maturing because I, I mean, look at where I love. Don't get me wrong, I'm very grateful for this building, but come on, look at look at where we meet. I mean, that's not what we would call aesthetically pleasing. It's functional, right? And I think we have given up something, right? We have. Yeah, we have. And and there were some of the churches like in Porto that my wife, uh, we were like, we're not going in there because they cover everything in gold. I saw a picture of what it looked like. What's actually. wrong with that? <laughs> Okay, so I've been to Byz- <laughs> Byzantine churches. Nothing, I guess, Laura. Byzantine churches, okay, and they use mosaic, and it's heebie-jeebies. often gold mosaic. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. It's not my style, but yeah. talk about, I mean, they did it for the love of God. It wasn't. Gotcha. I mean, the motivation. Mm-hmm. I think That's an excellent right. defense, and I've done a lot of art history, and I love it. It's hard for me to sometimes go into an active Catholic church, though. And see all the candles. Where I'm like, people are in here praying to this thing, and then I and I'm like, man, I should tear this down and put it in a museum. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not arguing for that. That's not how people should be. Yes. Me though, I'm just like, I the iconoclasm inside of me is just like, oh my gosh. And part of, when we went visit all these sites in Israel, part of me was kind of sad because they covered all the stuff with, yeah. like, art and stuff. And I really just wanted to see the law, like artifact. Yeah, the right. actual land and the stone and stuff. And to me, it felt like I'm glad that people. Oh, yeah, in Israel, it's like claptrap, right? It's like claptrap. Well, they commercialized it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. See, and that's where yeah, I've heard about the Vatican can be hard to do because it's so, it's like this thing, they like rush you in there and you're like being shoved through. Yeah. Did you find that it was a little yeah, overwhelming? Yeah, we, we started, we got the earliest tour we could. It started at 7 in the morning. And <laughs> the amount of stuff in there. We were done by noon or 11, and yeah. it wasn't enough time. Yeah, totally. Although, I don't know, I'm put off by some of the... Okay, so when I went, I went in August,
August, well, tried to go, and the line to get in was literally a mile long. I thought, there's no way I'm waiting here no in way. the heat for that. I went back a couple years later in March with a friend. We walked in, there was nobody there. In we March? Hmm. Yeah. Take all the time you want. You know, that was yeah. thought, what a difference. You know, it was, I could lie on the floor and look mm -hmm. at the right. ceiling, yeah. and there was nobody there to stop me. There was no, you know, otherwise people complain about what your experience was like. You stand there with thousands of people like this looking yeah. up, you know. It's, so, yeah. yeah, my friend was in there and he said he had his camcorder and he was just like doing one of these numbers. Well, like why, yeah, why, why not just get a book? Direction. Get a book. Well, they have a 360, they have this website you go to, it's the Vatican, and it's there's no people inside and it's a 360 view. And you can you can like zoom in to like details, uh, look at a leaf, zoom out. Yeah, you, you, I was like, okay, this is like I don't need to go there now. Unless in March where there's no people. That's the way to do it. I was shocked. You know, it was like there was nobody. Nobody. Yeah. No. Nice. Well, maybe. So we are only just um, scratching the surface um, about this medieval thing. We're going to be talking about this now for the next couple of weeks, and then talk about what it has to do with the Narnian series, um, because C.S. Lewis, this was his primary apologetic when it came to literature and art. He thought the best way to tear down the modern paradigm was restoring the medieval paradigm, um, at least as a tool that people could use to think about their world and think about how they're interacting with it. Um, not only when it came to synthesizing ideas, which I think modern evangelicals are very bad at this, right? Like, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I <laughs> in response and do it. I, so I recently quoted from the Midrash, which is a Jewish text, you know, in, in a sermon. And one, I got a question because somebody wanted to read the Midrash. They were like, oh, we can read the Midrash? I was like, totally. Another person was like, are you sure you want to be quoting the Midrash? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, they were commenting on uh, the Old Testament before Jesus came. Sometimes it's a little helpful. <laughs> Thousands of years old. Anyway, um, so synthesizing ideas is, I think, really important. It's like, how do you read in, in, in modern day? How do you read somebody like Traeger, who's writing books like the Benedict Option and that kind of stuff? And then Peterson, Dr. Peterson, Jordan Peterson, how do you read these ideas and synthesize these things? I, I think modern evangelicals are terrible at this. And C.S. Lewis, I think, helps us. He, he was a great reader. He swallowed ideas whole. And he was able to fit them together in a worldview, I think, that was much more solid than ours. I, I think there's a lot of common grace and a lot of common knowledge. God is very kind to us, especially now, um, where there's a lot to be learned. And I don't think we should be afraid of ideas, right? He was never afraid of his critics. He was never afraid of um, looking foolish. But he would engage things, and he would listen very carefully. And, 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 and there are other stories we'll, we'll get into later. But, like, he would be corrected. He'd go to the Socratic club, and somebody would debate with him about how something in his work is not very clear. And he would go and fix it. He was not afraid of, of being challenged. I think modern evangelicals now especially are very, very defensive, Right? And we think that we have cornered the market on truth, which we haven't. The scriptures have. But there are a lot of people over, like, what, what has Anselm? What did Anselm help us understand about the scriptures? Most moderns have no idea who Anselm is. Um, and then they're like, oh, he's a, he was a bishop in the Catholic Church at, in the Middle Ages. And they're like, I'm good. I'll read Spurgeon. You're like, yeah, you should read Spurgeon. But you should also read Anselm. <laughs> right? The, one of the best books I've ever read on the Incarnation, absolutely one of the most beautiful books ever written, 
was by Athanasius on the Incarnation. And, and if you don't really, you haven't really thought about the Incarnation until you've read that book. You, you can read the scriptures all you want. <laughs> but until you sit down and read Athanasius, it, it's just, it, it's so beautifully written. Um, I, I try to read portions of it every year at Christmas time. I can't even read the whole book in one go because it's too much. But I think the medieval paradigm is something that we should consider more than we do. And, and we're going to keep talking about that. So next time I will have a, a somewhat more structured outline of what their cosmology looked like um, and how, they came, how it came about and some of the books that really influenced them. And, and then what we're going to do um, is just keep considering it on a slightly deeper and deeper level over time. Okay? Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, guys.